This is Pam Ressler. Welcome to Raising Resilience. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by my friend and expert on risk perception, David Ropeek. We're going to be talking about stress and resilience in our current um, state of being pretty stressed out about the coronavirus, now called COVID-19. So let me introduce David to those of you who don't know him. David Ropeek is a retired Harvard instructor, author, and consultant on the psychology of risk perception, risk communication, and risk management. He's also the author of How Risky Is It Really? Why Our Fears Don't Always Match the Facts. And prior to teaching at Harvard in the School of Public Health, some of you may remember David as a television reporter in the Boston area. He twice won the DuPont Columbia Award, which is often referred to as the Pulitzer Prize of broadcast journalism. So again, thanks, David, for joining me and um, talking about perhaps um, the perception gap of how our fear really um, changes the way we um, think about risk and also maybe some things, tangible steps that we can do ourselves for our kids, our communities to reduce that perception gap. So let's have a conversation. Glad to be with you. Thanks, David. It's kind of scary. I was um, uh, over at our local grocery store and noticed that there is no toilet paper to be had, as well as no sanita hand sanitizer or disinfection wipes. Um, so what's going on with this? Why, why is this um, current um, epidemic scaring us so much? When at risk comes along and we don't know everything we need to know to give ourselves a sense that, hey, I know what I need to, like we don't have really control over our safety vulnerable. So the fact that it's new and has these unknowns with it raises the fear. But in this case, there are some other elements as well. We've learned over the past couple decades with West Nile and SARS and H1N1 and MERS, middle, to, to be afraid of the whole just idea of the new pandemic, the new Oh my God, here's a disease that's going to wipe us all out. And so when along comes something that sounds like it could be that, before we know whether the actual germ behaves that way, our memory springs into action and says, I remembered to be afraid of that last time. And out of our memory, screaming into consciousness comes, oh, this could be the big one. And so the fact that this is similar to that warning then triggers what's called availability in our mind. The, the, the uh, academics call it the availability heuristic. Basically, our mind gives extra emotional weight to anything scary that comes screaming quickly out of consciousness. So that's a second factor, and that's a lot of baggage. There, there's more, but I don't want to run on by myself because this is supposed to be a conversation. But there are other factors as well. Yeah, I think that... Um that unknown, that lack of control really feels scary to many of us. And um, I'm wondering what you think about how that's changed. You mentioned a lot of our previous um, 
uh, epidemics, things we were worried about. But we're in a, a new land, let's say, of uh, social media and 24-7 news that we didn't have in the early 2000s when SARS was um, prevalent. How do you think that has changed our perception or um, actually how we're um, understanding um, these, these new waves of um, epidemics or illness? When our, let me back up. We only have so much room on our consciousness radar screen, if you will. What we're aware of, what we can think about. Most of the world that's going on, we're not aware of. So if you think, think about our consciousness as a radar screen, when one blip on that screen gets really big and really bright, that literally causes the brain to overweight how alert it is to any other information that's relevant to that blip, okay? Our brain is lazy, and if a lot of information is making information that adds to that blip. Well, we can't escape information about this disease now because not only from the news media, which a lot of people blame, but in conversations with our friends, whether on social media or just in regular contact. I mean, you went to the grocery store, but your people were talking about it. So social media magnifies the general effect that when a new thing comes along, we're scared of it. We talk about it more. The news media covers it more because they know we're scared of it and we're going to pay more attention to it. Social media plays a part in that. De-stress, I know we're going to talk about that, and escape that 24-7 awareness, which we really need to do. Yeah, I think I think you make a, a, a great point there, um, how it amplifies it, how it becomes the big, the big shiny thing. You know, when we really consider um, other health issues, for instance, the seasonal flu, which doesn't get nearly as much um, bandwidth right now. There have been many more people who have died of the flu this year than. Um, currently have been sickened or have died uh, from the coronavirus. So I, I think that does change our, our way we, we view our lives and our risk. And um, one of the things that has struck me, and, and perhaps this relates to, to the resilience as well as the stress, is that this feels very isolating to me. So what I mean by that is when you look at natural disasters, hurricanes, um, tornadoes, etc., there's a community aspect of that. People are out there helping each other. And what we're being asked to do now seems very isolating. So um, we're fearful of the other. We're hoarding um, uh, sand, uh, hand sanitizer, etc. Which feels like that could cause more stress and reduce our resilience because we don't have that community um, that we feel connected to. What's your take on that? The fact that we're buying hand sanitizer and toilet paper and water and masks isn't so much hoarding because other people will. We look for for when a new thing comes along, we don't feel like we have it because we don't know everything we need to know. 
So we grab at whatever is easy. Mm-hmm. So we go, go to Costco, and in addition to buying all the food you're supposed to have in case you get laid up and you're sick for a couple mm-hmm. weeks, we grab supplies. <laughs> it's like in New England with snowstorms, everybody buys milk and eggs, but nobody ever uses milk and eggs. It's like it's a feeling of control. That's what's driving that acquisition. Um, in terms of the isolation in society, it's interesting. The literature on quarantine shows that most people do so willingly because they want to live in a world that works that way and where others will do the same thing to protect them. There's actually a social component in the willingness to self-quarantine. So while we're physically separated from one another, as you point out, we're feeling like we're participating in what society is doing in society's best interest. It's a motivation toward quarantine, not away. That's really interesting. So you're saying there's a a kind of an altruistic behavior that... um, we're connecting to even if, and, and doing it voluntarily, even if we're feeling a bit isolated. Yes, and altruism in the, in, the, in the sense of the evolutionary psychology is we want our genes to do better and our family to do better because that's where our genes are, but also our group to do better. And our group in this case is everybody in the community. Sometimes it's our religion or our political party or our gender. In this case, it's kind of, we're all in it together, that community, and we want that community to do better. So we sacrifice some of our resources, like our freedom and our ability to go to work and stuff like that, in the name of society doing better, because that enhances our chances in the long run if society works that way. That is pure group Altruism. That feels pretty good when we explain it that way, doesn't it? It feels like uh, we're in this for others. And um... well, it's, it's one way to look at it. That's that's the underlying psychology. But of course, after a week and a half at home, you're feeling pretty alone. <laughs> true. So true. there's that too, and that brings me to that, well, that brings me to things that we can do to reduce the sense of isolation as part of reducing the stress. If you know somebody who's isolated, call them a lot more than normal reach out to them, help them with their sense of isolation. That's a friendly, stress-reducing, helpful community thing to do. If you are isolated, reach out more to your friends and say, hey, I'm stuck at home. You want to shoot the breeze for 10 minutes or chat online or you know, however you reach them. Um, that's one of many ways that we can think of one another in our communities and how we're feeling these days and help us with those feelings um, that's specific to the quarantine. Those are great, great suggestions. I'm also thinking about ways that um, parents can model this behavior of um, kind of meeting fear, naming it as the emotion, but giving their kids some ways to see an opportunity here. Um, One thing I was thinking about is, wouldn't it be great for the kids to become the teachers on hand washing? So um, they could be um, modeling it for the parents and the parents for them and a kind of a win-win situation, but allowing kids to actually be the teachers in some way might be a really great way for them to feel involved and not as fearful um, of what they're hearing or what they're um, sensing from their parents. 
Certainly we need to think about our kids and how they react to this emotionally, but they don't like being isolated from their friends and having to stay home, even if it means I get to teach mom and dad how to wash their hands, necessarily that big a deal. But we do have to think a lot about how this imprints a fear of this kind of thing in our younger people, because this fear memory will set the tone for the next outbreak and the next outbreak. Um, we do need to help our kids put this risk in person, just as we do. This is going to be really bad. This is a highly infective disease with a fatality rate amongst those who get infected of between 0.3 and 1. Those sound like small numbers, but consider that an average flu season is 0.1. So that means we'll have triple or way more numbers of people sick and dead. And a recent estimate by the London School of Hygiene puts the potential range of U.S. deaths at between three and 600,000. That's a big number, and that's going to mean people all around us. And uh, kids seeing that, and we seeing that, are going to take great alarm for that and alarm from that. On the other hand, that is essentially what a bad flu season does. Though this germ is new, this experience is not. Society has gone through periods of bad flu seasons that killed 100 or 150 or 200,000 people. They're thankfully uncommon, and we do have more resilience against the new strains of flu that come out than this wholly new germ. And we do have a flu vaccine that can reduce that risk, which gives us a sense of control. And we're familiar, so we're less afraid of it. We can think about this in those terms, that this has some new components, but it has some familiar components. This is an infectious respiratory disease, a bad one. We've gone through that before. We know what that means. We can see this in more familiar sorts of terms, take away the scary part just because of the newness, and put the risk in perspective. I, th I think that's really important because you're right. It, we have um, a societal knowledge, uh, a remembering of we've done this before. It's just that this is a new name and a new thing that feels very unknown and scary to most of us. So I love that suggestion of, of actually stepping back and saying, hey, we've done this before. And our society has um, has been okay. And so I think that that perspective taking is such an important piece of this also. Um, so what would be your kind of bullet points to people of what they should do today or tomorrow as things unfold to protect their stress, their resilience. They are feeling stressed right now and we acknowledge that, but, but how do they keep their resilience as, at, as high as possible during this challenging time of unknowns? Well, the very first most important part in the context of this conversation that I would like to make is that worry can be bad for your health. A chronic, persistent, more than normal worry. We live in worried times. Okay, but that's kind of normal worry. Add to that more than normal worry, and that more than normal worry persists for more than a couple of weeks. We are in a mini fight or flight response, and that literally suppresses our immune system. Chronic, 
persistent worry, more than normal worry, makes you more vulnerable to catching infectious disease or getting sicker if you do. So it absolutely washing our hands that we try and keep this risk in perspective. Not be not afraid. This is a serious respiratory disease, and it's going to make a lot of people sick and dead, and we need to take that seriously. But if we worry more than that, and oh my God, and oh my God, and oh my God, and the sky is falling, that too makes us vulnerable to disease. So that's the first point. The second point I would make is, and this is easy for me to recommend but hard to do, is log off. Stop paying constant, you're the same as it is today without you checking all of your social media feeds 16 times in the next 16 minutes. You don't have to do that for your safety, but what it does is it makes that big screaming alert blip on your radar screen scream even louder. Log off, turn off, read a book, go binge watch some favorite show, walk the dog, take a break from constant awareness. Those are two really vital things. And the third thing that I would add is, just as we would not want people to sneeze or cough on us, and they wouldn't want us to sneeze or cough on them, we shouldn't want them to spread excessive fear into us because of the physical harm that fear can do, suppressing our immune system, and they shouldn't want us spreading excessive fear on them, like spreading germs makes their risk worse. So we have a responsibility in how we communicate about this amongst ourselves to others to not spread undue caution, undue fear, I should say. Caution's fine. Um, those would be the three things that I would suggest that could be helpful. I think those are, are great. Um, I guess I would add, um, being someone who teaches the benefits of mindfulness, which is dropping into the moment, whatever that moment may be, to um, allow yourself to notice, yeah, I'm nervous, I'm scared, I'm fearful, name that, and then notice something that is going right in your life. There's a lot of beauty out there, and uh, maybe we have to lower the bar a bit on um, what is beautiful or, or present, but I think one of the things that happens when we get into that um, long-term fear cycle or that chronic fear or stress is we forget about what's happening right now that um, is good. And, and not scary or bad. And so balancing that might be another way to, to help, um, both for kids and adults. Thanks, David, for a great conversation today. I hope the next time you're a guest on Raising Resilience, we can talk about something other than the coronavirus or COVID-19. So thanks again. <laughs> Good. Glad to help. Thank you all for tuning in to today's episode of Raising Resilience. I hope you'll subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or you can also find downloadable versions of each episode on my website, which is stressresources.com. Until next time, stay healthy and take care.